Home is supposed to be a place of safety and warmth, and maybe no other space inside your house is more comforting than a bath. You slip in, settle down, maybe with a glass of wine and some bubbles. But what if somebody is stealthily, silently watching you, there with the intention of killing you? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. Frances Carrier never wanted for much. As a teen, she didn't even yearn to attend college. Her dream was to be a good mother and raise her children. Frances and her husband, Edmund, met in the early 50s in Rockland, Massachusetts, where Frances was raised. They were said to be madly in love and looking forward to building a family. They spent a brief period living in Florida before moving back home to Massachusetts, choosing the Cape. When she married Edmund, Frances's parents were a bit taken aback because Edmund, you see, was rough around the edges. Not a good-looking man by any means. He was arrogant and vulgar. He spoke gruffly and his speech was laced with profanity. You know, this was one of those guys. He was loud and he liked to order people around. He had greased back, black hair, rather common back then. He had said his father abused him horribly. Frances, on the other hand, was soft-spoken, gentle, kind, and considerate. She came from a church-going, tight-knit family and was raised with love. Frances didn't smoke. She didn't swear. She was polite to everyone. With brown eyes, black hair, and truly an American girl smile, Frances embodied what it was to be a good human being. So from the outset, it was an odd pairing, both of them from different sides of the tracks, if you will allow me the cliche. After a long marriage, Frances had tossed her husband Edmund out of the house and initiated divorce proceedings in 1978. She'd never expected her life to turn out as it had. But look, hindsight is 2020, and looking back over 25 years of marriage, she might have seen it all coming. That divorce proceeding started a war between Edmund and Frances. For example, Leaving probate court one day, after yet another messy proceeding over custody of the kids, she walks out to her car to find the windshield smashed. Edmund is never charged, but everyone knew he did it. She bought a camper that first summer Edmund was gone, planning to take the kids on trips. You know, enjoy nature. Not long after she got it, Franny, as she was called, is rousted outside one night to find the trailer burning to the ground. Edmund ruled her life with an iron fist. One of the simple gifts of life Franny noticed after Edmund was out of the house was that she could watch the television shows she wanted to. It's just crazy to think that he had that much control over her. It's like it's the little things. I mean, we all don't get me wrong. We all argue with our spouses over what we're going to watch next and watching our own shows. And for that reason, we have two televisions in my house so I can go watch Love Island UK while my husband watches, oh. you know, Battlestar Galactica. But uh, nice. <laughs> 
No, but that's just terrible for her. But that's also what abusers do is they want to control everything about your life. That is Catherine Law, my executive producer. Hi. Who you will hear a lot more from, not only in this episode, but future episodes of Crossing <laughs> the Line with M. William Phelps. No, seriously, Catherine is great. She adds a tremendous amount to this show, and I'm very grateful to have her. Oh, thanks, Phelps. And she makes an excellent point about, you know, we take it for granted that we can just go into our house and turn on a TV, but Frances Carrier couldn't. She couldn't do that, mm -hmm. but not anymore. Frances is her own woman now with a new lease on life. She is finally looking forward to the future. Since she'd kicked Edmund out, Frances came out of her shell. She sings in the church choir. She allows her hair to grow long and even wears blue jeans, things that just weren't allowed under Edmund's control. By 1980, Frances was granted a restraining order on Edmund. After years of beatings and emotional abuse from the guy, which some claim she had endured for the better part of their marriage, Franny is now protecting herself. In Bourne, Massachusetts, Cape Cod, close to Cape Cod Canal, the Carrier family had lived together for decades in a white colonial two-story farmhouse dwelling with a wraparound porch. There was a big oak tree out front, a small yard, a broken up asphalt driveway, a two-rail wooden farm fence succumbing to age in the elements. Just to the left of the driveway are two granite posts sticking up about three feet out of the ground. You see these all over New England. Most are from the colonial period. They have these iron rings attached to the top of them. You'd ride up on your horse and tie it to the ring. There's several right down the street from my house as I speak. Francis now lives alone in the house with her and Edmund's 14-year-old daughter. One night in early January, she is running the bathwater and getting ready for her boyfriend to come over. This new life she has sounds like a dream, I realize, but this story, trust me, is anything but. On the night of January 3rd, Francis and Edmund's youngest daughter isn't in Cape Cod with her mother. She is with Edmund in Florida, visiting one of his and Francis's oldest daughters. Edmund had extended their visit for a few days. By January 3rd, the 14-year-old daughter should have been back home at the Cape to attend school after the holiday break. But Edmund, who is also visiting his girlfriend while in Florida, decides to stay a few extra days. Their older daughter even mentions something about it. Why are you still here when she has school starting back home? Edmund replies, quote, It's none of your goddamn business. I will leave whenever I am ready to leave. <laughs> so you're getting a picture of this dude. It's like, chill. Why all the anger? But that is Edmund, explosive and hostile, even to his own daughter. While in Florida during this trip, Edmund is outwardly vocal about his marriage to Franny falling apart over the years. When the subject arises one night, Edmund tells their oldest daughter, quote, your mother is a whore and sleeping with everyone on Cape Cod. If she continues with this divorce, she'll be sorry for what she does. End quote. Not a nice guy. What's clear from this exchange is that the divorce had been Franny's choice, and it was not going smoothly. That Cape Cod house I mentioned, Edmund wants it. He is not willing to give it up to Franny. 
but it isn't just your typical divorce-related bargaining. See, Edmund knows that the Cape is expanding. A major road is slated to go through the area where the carrier's house is located, and Edmund knows that whoever holds the keys can sell that house for maybe twice what the house is actually worth. Franny had worked hard cleaning office buildings all day. She is generally exhausted by 6 p.m., but that night, a Thursday, she had been excited to get home and get ready for that date with her boyfriend, a local guy named Rodney Burrell. He and Franny had met in town after she separated from Edmund. Unbeknownst to Franny, however, a man is waiting for her to come home. The guy had already driven by the house earlier but did not see Franny's car, so he headed to a grocery store parking lot to wait for her arrival. After 6.30, the man drives by the house and notices Franny's vehicle parked in the driveway. It is dark by then. In New England, I mean, this time of year, dead of winter, pitch black outside. Nobody is around. Franny headed upstairs to the bathroom, getting ready to take that bath, already naked. The man enters the house silently walks up the stairs, enters the bathroom, and without a word begins choking Franny. As he is doing this, he smashes her head into one of those old-school cast-iron radiators you might see in, like, a New York tenement building. The man has a filleting knife with him, the type you might use to gut a fish. As Franny lies on the floor, half-conscious, he takes out the knife and stabs her through the heart, as well as three additional times severing her aorta and puncturing her lungs. He then drags her across the floor and leans her lifeless body up against the bathtub, inadvertently cutting Franny's arm in the process. Within minutes, Frances Carrier is dead. Her killer drives to the Cape Cod Canal and tosses the knife and the pair of gloves he wore during the murder into the water. Then he drives to Brockton, Massachusetts, his grandmother's house, which is about 50 minutes northwest of Bourne, heading toward Boston. First thing the man does is make a call. Quote, it's done, he says. The man he calls then drives over to the killer's location, the grandmother's house, and they discuss an alibi, that they were together all night in Brockton. So at this point, the husband is still in Florida, but I'm assuming they still questioned him? Yeah, so... There's no doubt that this is not him. Of course, once they get to the scene, one of the first people that they are going to question is Edmund Carrier, but also the boyfriend who found her. Right. So the people closest to her are going to be suspected first. But your question is accurate because it's always the husband, right? It's always a Dateline episode. (laughs) Right. But in this case, he's got an alibi and he's with a bunch of people, including his children, 1,200 miles away in Florida. So there's going to be a problem there. But it seems pretty suspicious, considering Edmund and Franny are engaged in that contentious divorce proceeding, which is at this time in one of its nastiest phases. Edmund is upset that she will ultimately get that house. By then, he had even offered Franny $10,000 to, in his words, just go away. But she declined. According to Rodney Burrell, the boyfriend, By about 8 p.m. on the night of her murder, he arrives at the house, walking in the front door. It's quiet. He calls out her name. No answer. 
Then he walks up the stairs and finds himself staring down at her dead body in the bathroom, a pool of blood around her. At least, that's his story. With that, we'll take a short break. Be right back. The story Franny Carrier's boyfriend, Rodney Burrow, gives police is that he walks in and finds her nude, bloodied body in the bathroom of her home on the night of January 3rd, 1980. Taking a look at the timeline, a friend of Franny's had phoned her about 6.30 p.m., but nobody answered. Burrow, the boyfriend, had been slated to pick Franny up around 7.30, 8 o'clock that night. After arriving and finding Franny, he calls 911. Then he runs out to his truck, grabs a gun he keeps inside the vehicle, and starts searching the home. Police arrive, and Burl is pacing out in the front yard, talking in circles. He says the door was unlocked. He walked in and found her upstairs. Nothing in the house is missing. There is no sign of forced entry. Even so, Burl is their number one suspect at this point. Beyond being stabbed four times, Franny has defensive wounds on her hands, meaning she fought back. No fingerprints are found at the scene. There is very little for police to go on. So Burl seems like the best place to start. Again, it's got to be either the husband or the boyfriend, right? Right. Rule of thumb is if you were to work under that theory in these cases every time as a detective, you would have a very good solve rate or as a detective once put it to me you would be batting very close to a 1,000. I don't really understand sports references, but I'm going to assume that that's great. That's impossible, (laughs) actually. (laughs) A good batting average is about 300 today, just FYI. If it's the Red Sox, it's like, you know, 210. (laughs) So Burrow is brought in for questioning. He tells the story of his day and that evening. He says he stopped at a place called Peterson's Market in Yarmouth, which is a solid 30 minutes from Bourne, heading up the Cape. Bourne is at the beginning of the Cape, Buzzards Bay, where the Cape Cod Canal cuts through the peninsula, turning it essentially into an island. Not a lot of opportunities for detour there. Burl shows cops a receipt from the grocery store saying he also stopped to pick up his daughter at the youth center in Yarmouth. His daughter is brought in for a polygraph, and she passes. But when Burl takes a polygraph, however, he doesn't do as well, and law enforcement now have more suspicions. So I have heard that if you're nervous or you're anxious, sometimes it can be inconclusive or even throw off a polygraph, right? It definitely could, because we all know polygraphs really are regulated by your heart rate, by your anxiety. I mean, when I get like pulled over, I'm in a full sweat, even though I'm probably going to get let off with a warning. I've never gotten a ticket, by the way. You probably wouldn't pass a lie detector at that point. No, I just run high to anxiety anyway, (laughs) which I think is why I love true crime. But that's beside the point. You know, for me, it's kind of a lot to give the daughter and him a polygraph this early. But again, it's 1980, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. in 1980, you went right to the polygraph. Let's see if he's lying. I think it's crazy that they gave the daughter a polygraph, too. I'm like, they just started with that? This daughter? I don't know. That seems traumatic. Yeah, go right to the daughter. Yeah. You know, because she, well, the daughter is alibying him for, you know, all intents and purposes. So I don't know that I'd go right to the polygraph, but 
Meanwhile, Francis's oldest child phones his siblings in Florida to tell them the horrible news. Franny's children fly back to Massachusetts. Edmund heads back too, but he drives. Of course, even though Edmund was in Florida at the time of the murder, he is brought in immediately and questioned. Yet it goes nowhere. Edmund maintains he had nothing whatsoever to do with his wife's murder. Police look for a connection. Financial, did Edmund make any phone calls, some kind of business transaction, you know, a murder-for-hire scenario. But they run into nothing but roadblocks. And from there, despite their suspicions about the husband and the boyfriend, the case begins to collect freezer burn, big time. Another issue plaguing the case from the get-go, remember now, it's 1980, is law enforcement's territorial hubris. Municipal and state police did not always like working together on investigations of this nature back then. The local police departments in Cape Cod were very small, with little to no experience solving violent crimes like this. You see, this type of murder needs what really is a complex, gumshoe, person-power-driven investigation, which just wasn't the forte of the local departments. That's why, in my opinion, you have that state police support system in place to begin with. Departments vying for bragging rights over which of them solved the case, refusing to share information with each other, breeds the perfect recipe for a case like this to grow cold very quickly. That's something I find so frustrating is you look at some of these old cases and it literally is, we have this really specific type of murder in one town and then we have this really same exact specifics type of murder in the next town over and nobody back then wanted to share any information with each other just because it was like, no, it's my case. I got to solve it. You know, everyone believes from day one, Edmund had something to do with the murder, even people in his own family. After two years of interviews with everyone Franny and Edmund knew, they zero in on a co-worker of Edmund's. The DA puts together a grand jury investigation against the guy. His name? Richard Grabowski. He lived in Wareham, Massachusetts, about a 20-minute drive to Bourne, heading west, away from the Cape. Grabowski had that bad guy reputation. He ran with a rough crowd and was known to knock heads and do whatever he needed to earn extra cash. The problem with Grabowski at this time, however, is lack of evidence. When a case is running cold, the one tactic you have at your disposal is to put word out in your prisons in search of informants. This went on a lot then and still does in many ways. And what I mean by this is you go to your known local criminals, those who you feel will talk, get them to start mentioning the case inside the walls of prisons to see what comes back. Do they make promises to these guys for information? Sure they do. Do they offer some sort of compensation? Absolutely. But some guys in prison will do whatever they got to do to get home sooner rather than later. So as a cop facing a case that's frozen solid, you need to use whatever means you can to solve it before the case is totally out of your reach. As this indictment is put into place, a second man's name comes up. David Mello. He's a friend of Grabowski's. Mello gets word on the street, police want info. He comes forward and tells this story. He was with Grabowski on the day of Franny's murder. He says they were driving near the carrier house. Grabowski says, quote, pull over, then proceeds to get out of the car 
and the dude disappears for 15 minutes. When he comes back to the car, he says nothing. They part ways later that night. A few weeks later, as Grabowski and Mello are again driving by the carrier house, Grabowski kind of looks out the window, smirks, and says, I off that bitch. The indictment process against Grabowski lingers for a year. During that time, the DA's office rethinks its position. The problem here is Mello is an admitted drug user who has zero credibility. The DA decides not to bring Grabowski, who denies any involvement, into the grand jury after all. So they begin from that moment to take another look at Edmund. One lingering piece of sketchy behavior on Edmund's part is that he did not directly attend Franny's funeral, and that rubs law enforcement the wrong way. They find out that it was the family who suggested Edmund stay away because, quote, they believed he had harmed Franny. Instead, Edmund parks outside the church and cemetery, leans against the hood of his car and smokes cigarettes. My guess is to be intimidating. Investigators know it's not evidence, of course, but it says an awful lot. I'm back to that Dateline theory again. From 1982 all the way up until 2005, 23 years, many theories are investigated and dozens of interviews are conducted, but nothing budges this case. I mean, I remember living around here during this time, and this case was always in the back of my mind. And it's like, is that ever going to be solved? We all know who did it. Fuck. It appears that Franny's murder will go unsolved. There's unfortunately no DNA that can be magically put into CODIS or used to compare to various suspects, no fingerprints, no smoking gun evidence. There's nobody telling stories about a cousin or brother or friend admitting to the murder. Not yet, anyway. There's still suspicion about the boyfriend, Burl. He is the go-to. He found her. He cannot effectively produce an alibi for the time of the murder. Starting in 2002, a second grand jury convenes to investigate Franny's murder. That investigation focuses back on Richard Grabowski. But this time, they develop two additional suspects they believe were involved with Grabowski. This was a murder for hire. That's my best prosecutor voice because the prosecutor makes that announcement in 2005 after a small gang of killers are arrested and charged with Franny Carrier's murder. Three men are arrested. Grabowski, who was 57 at the time, a friend of Grabowski's, Stephen Stewart, 49, and a 57-year-old man named David Finney. Stort and Grabowski had been on investigators' radar since the early 80s, with Finney being added later, the DA, explains to the media. In court, after the three are arrested, the prosecutor makes the claim there is a fourth. Bingo. Edmund Carrier, who paid the other men $10,000 to carry out the murder of his wife. Batting average saved. One story attached to all the men has Stort and Grabowski playing pool one night, days after Franny's murder. They claim Edmund came over, slapped 10K in a roll wrapped with a rubber band, of course, you know, because he's a badass, right? Right, because he's from a movie in the 1950s. Right, right. I mean, I hope you're picturing that because that's who this guy thought he was, you know. But he slaps that wadded roll of cash on a pool table saying, I'm pleased that that bitch is out of the way. 
But then he adds how angry he is over the fact that they had not killed his oldest son as well, and that Franny's body was left inside the house. In yet another story told to the DA's office, Edmund approached a friend of Grabowski's in Stortz one day a few months after the murder, put his arm around his shoulder and said, I hear you're doing a lot of flapping, son. Yikes, this fucking guy, he feels like somebody out of uh, a C movie, right? That's black and white. It's like a bad film noir. (laughs) You think a squealer can get away from me? You know what I do to squeeze? I let them have it in the belly so they can roll around for a long time thinking it over. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely sounded something like that 1950s film noir clip. Grabowski's attorney goes on the offensive. He tells the media that it was Rodney Burrell, the boyfriend who had died of natural causes years prior, that he is the actual killer. I mean, you got to love defense attorneys just like going after the guy who can't defend himself because he's dead. It, it's so true. I mean, how many times do we see this? Yeah. What's our best defense? Well, let's attack the guy who's dead who can't defend himself. <laughs> can't put him on the stand. Yeah. He, he can't. Yeah. You know, they do this in the media. You know, they start this campaign against someone who is defenseless, really, Mm -hmm. because the person is dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the problem with that, everyone knew, is that Burrell had zero motive and beyond a missing alibi for the time frame of the murder, a time of which he was expected to be at Franny's house, there's no evidence against the guy. Right. You can't have an alibi when you were like there. Right. Or about to arrive. And you're supposed to be there. to her house. And you're supposed to be there for a very good reason. Yeah. Yeah. Edmund had made out all right for the past 20 plus years. He had moved into the house where Franny was murdered not long after her funeral. Kind of odd, but not a crime. And remember, the value of the house had been set to skyrocket. As the investigation in the housing market heated up, he relocated to Florida. Of course, Florida. Of course, Florida. Where else? But something's got to crack here. What made the difference in the case turns out to be that the Massachusetts State Police partnered with Bourne and Wareham Police, along with the DA's investigators. Finally. Right. After 20 years, they went about re-interviewing everyone who had been interviewed early on. Interesting. They decide to work together and things start to take shape. Imagine that. It's not rocket science. (laughs) Some people who had been interviewed immediately after the murder changed their story. And three people re-interviewed were now willing to take the stand and testify to Stephen Stewart bragging about the murder. He told three separate people he had stabbed Franny in that bathroom. Another piece of information that came out was how scared for her life Franny was during those days before she was murdered. That gang had been so intimidating back in the day that those new and old witnesses were afraid to come forward then. But time had changed things remarkably. It's one of the assets in cold case investigation. You just have to stay in it and keep going back to the well and hoping that people break relationships with one another, right? Someone gets mad at somebody. Someone has a grudge. Somebody's not as scared as they used to be. And if you keep going back to them... You get the story. 
By the time the trials of the men were set to begin in 2005, Grabowski had died in a freak motorcycle accident in Florida while visiting Edmund. Hmm, wonder why they were getting together. Yeah, I mean, that's not suspicious. Just right? old friends. Yeah, right? Always Florida. With Grabowski dead, it left Stephen Stort to face a judge and jury first. The narrative was rather simple. Edmund Carrier knew Grabowski, hired him for the $10,000, and Grabowski then hired Stephen Stewart for $5,000 to do the actual murder. You gotta love a good middleman. Like, honestly, you said that, and I'm like, that's actually brilliant. You just take the money, get somebody else to do the dirty work. It's perfect. And here's the thing about that. When you're caught, if you drop the dime first, you get the least amount of time. I mean, brilliant. At least one of these guys wasn't an idiot. But 10K? I mean... Right? And then for the other guy to do it for 5K, I'm like, excuse me, that is not enough money. Uh, even in 1980, I mean, it's not like 50,000 or something. I mean... No. And, and, but look, I've lived around this area my entire life, and I know these types of guys. I, yeah. I grew up with these types of guys. And look... I, he could have probably got it done for 2500 if he pushed it. Right. Right. He's just murdering for beer money at this point. Yeah. By far the most credible witness in all of this was Stephen Stort's son, who claimed that his dad had said to him, quote, the first time I killed someone was on the Cape. Uh, the first time, dude? One witness who knew the carriers gave riveting testimony about how one night, not long before the murder, Edmund stopped by his house to have a little chat. He was with a younger guy, that guy, Stephen Stewart. As they chatted, Edmund said, quote, do any of you want to earn a few extra thousand dollars? End quote. The men assumed it was for construction work as they were all tradesmen of one kind or another. So they asked him what the money was for. Quote, I want you to do away with my wife. End quote. He testified Edmund had said that. But it was Stort's son, whom he had met for the first time in 1998, who gave the most compelling testimony against the admitted killer. My father said it was the easiest money he'd ever made, and he kept laughing. It took jurors three hours to convict Stort of first-degree murder. It took the judge three minutes to institute a mandatory life sentence. Still, Edmund Carrier was walking the planet a free man. The DA just didn't feel he had enough to convict him. And with murder trials, he made a point to say in 2005, or as Eminem would say, you only get one shot. <laughs> so they wanted to button up their case. And with Stork convicted, they were in a good position to convince more people to come forward and talk. That all changed, however, in 2009, when the Supreme Judicial Court overturned Stork's four-year-old conviction. The ruling was based on a witness the prosecution had put on the stand, a friend of Stortz who refused to take the oath and answered no comment dozens of times when questioned by attorneys on the stand. That friend, it just so happened, was himself serving life for murder. This is just really a great bunch of guys that any woman would want her husband to hang out with. Just the pals. Yeah, I mean, the, the, these are my friends. They murder people. It's my buddies. Let's take a break, come back, and I'll explain the rest of this. So the murder case of Franny Carrier, which felt like it had been going on forever but slowly coming to an end, continued with people involved 
still not facing justice. And Stewart would now get a new trial. The prosecution was going backwards. Edmund Carrier had been subpoenaed to testify in Stewart's trial, but he had dodged it by disappearing just as trial proceedings got underway. He was ultimately found and arrested, but allowed bail. So he fled back to Florida to hide out some more. As one does. Then on July 9, 2010, Edmund Carrier is spotted walking out of, I love this, a liquor store in Bourne and was taken into custody. He was held without bail and charged with first-degree murder. But the prosecutor was tight-lipped about what new evidence they had to arrest Edmund on charges he was involved in his wife's murder. Things were happening behind closed doors. The DA had Stephen Stewart backed up against a wall. Stewart and the DA knew that the chance existed that he could be convicted during his second trial. So a plea deal was offered. You testify against Edmund, you give us an entire narrative of the events, and we will drop the charges to voluntary manslaughter. I'm not sure there can be such a thing as voluntary manslaughter, but there you go. Our justice system at work. I voluntarily manslaughtered somebody. That just doesn't make... It's on purpose on accident, Phelps. On purpose on accident. (laughs) I like that. Stewart took the deal. On July 13, 2010, he pled guilty to the charge and the prosecutor now had the actual murderer as its star witness against Edmund, the sole reason his wife was murdered. What's more, after serving seven years in total behind bars, Stephen Stewart was released on personal recognizance after his plea bargain agreement was signed. Community members and Franny's family were horrified, to say the least. How could the prosecutor cut a deal with a man who had done such a horrible act of violence and, as his own son had testified, laughed about it later saying Franny's murder was the easiest money he'd ever made? There you go. Justice. The prosecutor explained, quote, there are grave risks for both parties in the retrial of Stephen Stewart due to the unavailability of witnesses and the passage of time. It is for this reason that the interests of justice led to a decision to hold accountable the person who we believe is the architect of this crime, Edmund Carrier, end quote. It took another two years before it was all sorted out. Edmund was 78 years old by then. A heavyset, aging shell of a man he once was. Maybe shell isn't the correct word, but you get the picture. He was hated by most everyone in the family. Since his arrest, additional details emerged. The idea that the case went unsolved for so long was baffling, considering how many people were involved and how many people actually knew about the murder. Edmund was such a sociopath that beyond threatening to have his own son murdered with Franny on that day, he verbally accosted his son one afternoon at a local fair in earshot of several people claiming that the son and Franny were involved in a sexual relationship. Total bullshit, of course, but it showed the depths of depravity this clown would go in order to feed his thirst for revenge and just the sheer cruelty of who he is. What a lunatic to be like, why am so disappointed you didn't kill my firstborn son? You know, you, the picture of this guy is very accurate if you're thinking what I'm thinking. And that is this. Here's a guy who just rolls through life doing whatever he feels like doing and stomping on whoever he feels like stomping on. And he just doesn't give a shit. Nope. That is really... 
a good explanation of a sociopath. That's what he is. Mm-hmm. On May 22nd, 2012, 32 years after Franny was murdered, Edmund Carrier was convicted of first-degree murder and the death of his then-wife. It took jurors just over two hours to reach a decision. I'll be back next week, same time, same place, with another episode of Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps. As always, be safe, be aware of people like Edmund Carrier. Sources for today's episode come from Carrier convicted in his wife's 1980 murder, Steve Doan, Cape Cod Times, Carrier versus Medeiros, Civil Action Number 1513496, Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, Barnstable, Commonwealth v. Edmund J. Carrier, Jr., SJC-11339, 32 years later, trial set in slaying of former Rockland woman, Chris Burrell, the Patriot Ledger, the long, strange, twisting case of Franny Carrier's murder, Charles Pierce, the Boston Globe. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 